0: So he said, Have you smoked? And I said, Yeah, I have. He said, Have you ever worked with asbestos? He said, Yeah, I have. He said, Have you ever worked with brick dust or wood dust? So back in 1982, I was the guy that emptied the vacuum cleaners when they came back off the building sites and poured them into the skip. And he said, You've got a brain tumor. I said, All right, okay. And he said, It's going to kill you.
1: As regular viewers will know, I am not a man to bandy about the word inspirational just willy-nilly. But the story I'm about to play you is nothing short of precisely that. Inspirational. It's the story of a construction and demolition man who overcame adversity, who has used that adversity as a fuel to power the next stage of his life, and who is now using his own experience to help others. To give you some context, I asked the man in question, Paul Latham, to take us right back to the very beginning.
0: Yeah, so uh, an interesting story, I suppose. So 1980s, um, when I left school, there was a recession on, uh, pretty similar to what we're about to go into again. Um, I quite like maths and I quite like accounts and and things like that. My mum and dad said, oh, you need to work for a bank. You know, that's that's the future. If only we knew then what we know now. Um, And there were no jobs. Um, There was this massive recession on the teachers, very much like the teachers of today going, you're all doomed and you're all just going to have to go and sign on. Um, So I didn't get the opportunity to work for the bank till some years later. But one thing that did inspire me, and this is something that I've tried to carry on really through all of my career, and certainly now, is that I was lucky enough, the school that I went to, it's a normal normal secondary school, that they allowed us to go on half-day release to do car mechanics. So we went on our bus, the number 28, um, across the Warren Farm School. Um, and these teachers, <laughs> you imagine health and safety back in the day. Uh, we did all sorts of things, um, messing around with all these cars and really inspired us that, you know, we, we hadn't got a lot of hope, um, just like a, a lot of the kids that I meet today. So that the hope thing had been kicked out of us. But these guys were like, right, this is a set of wheeler gauges. This is a set of spanners. You can take that engine to pieces and you can put it back together again. And it was probably one of the one of the subjects that I really excelled in, but filled me full of confidence. So I left school, went to work for a little engineering company um, on one of these youth opportunity schemes uh, right in the centre of Birmingham. Um, Stopped there for about 12 months, I think, until they'd run out of money um, and then got made redundant. And I walked out of there um, thinking, right, I've got to find another job. And um, literally walked across the road into a, a place then that was a standalone tall hire company called WH Price, um, and there was an advert in the window that said uh, "Trade Counter Assistant required." So um, sixteen going on seventeen, I thought oh, I can do that, uh, which I couldn't. Um, but they interviewed me, and I can I can visualise the interview now. So they interviewed me and said for my cheek that they would take me on board uh, and that they would train me. Um, and I went through all the different departments, did all sorts of things. Um, it's some huge respect for those guys pouring up with me for being an absolute pain in the neck and asking all of those questions every time they said, "Can you do this?" Going, "Yeah, but why?" Um, but that was that was that was the training of the day. So by the time I was twenty one, I'd made salesman of the year, um, and there was one hundred and twenty staff in that company, and, and it, was, it was just sat on its own, that was, it was one of the biggest. Um, in the West Midlands. But I was thinking about this over the last few days, thinking about when did I start touching and, and filling around in the demolition side of things. Um, and I was thinking about the Nichols, when they brought down the, the power stations there back in 1982. I can remember putting all the generators onto them, and they were hand crank start. There was no electric start. Um, and there was a guy that used to ring this up at 10 o'clock every morning and tell us that we couldn't get these things to start, and we've got to send an engineer down to go and fix them. Um, But there was never any panic because he said they'd all got to walk from the top of this power station that they were taking down brick by brick. There was no days of these long reach machines that we've got now. There was blokes walking down the scaffold and it took them about 20 minutes to half an hour to get all the way down. So we got 20 minutes to get in there and fix the generators. (laughs) So, yeah, that was I think that was my initiation, I think, into into demolition in the day.
1: You've you've taken me up to your 21 and your sales manager of the year and you've stuck with it almost ever since, I guess. Yeah, so I,
0: I, I got I made this um, salesperson of the year um, back in the day, and that was yeah, that was the that was the training. So every Saturday morning um, there was a training course, on. Um, which was which was brilliant. They were they were absolutely brilliant, and they were John Cleese. We used to they used to buy John Cleese videos um, for us to watch. Whether that was customer services, whether it was abrasive wheels, and the sales directors and the sales guys all came in. Um, and showed us how to use the machine so we'd be more confident about selling them. Um, and and I stayed in that industry and I, and I changed probably about once every two years after that, um, either through moving um, moving around the area um, or getting head-hunted to different companies. So I worked for, for um, there was a company called Venture Plank, which was a piling rig um, hire company and a plant hire company, I went and worked for them. So I worked for lots and lots of different companies and through all of that, i picked up so much knowledge. Um, it, it, it was absolutely awesome because somebody ring up and go, Oh, have you got one of these? No, but I know where you can get one from. Um, and almost ended up with that one-stop shop um, of knowledge stuck in my head that most people haven't got in the industry. So, yeah, so I stopped, stopped seeing that up until about, um, When did I come out of there? Probably about the last three years, four years. Um, and, came, and came away
1: from it. So you mentioned training. I, I take it that was the, the, one of the, the next tangents that your, your career took, was it? Yeah. So um, I worked for lots of di- I worked for lots of different
0: people. Whether that was Hewden and Stewart, um, who did we work for at that point? So Hewden and Stewart Speedy's, um Kendricks in the day. Di- uh, of respect for David Kendrick, I must admit, what, a, what an entrepreneur he was. Um, so yeah, worked for all sorts of different types of people. And then me, me and my dad. Had, decided to set up our own um, little tool and plant eye company. So we set that up and that was doing uh, rather well. Um, And then we had a client ring us up and he said, Paul, he said, I'm I'm really stuck. He said, I can't get onto one of the sites. He said, they told us if I haven't got a certificate to use my angle grinder, um, I can't go on. He said, how how stupid is this? He said, can you sort it out? So of course, a few phone calls and and a little bit of digging later and, and put myself on an instructor course. Um, and that was 1998. And then I can remember sat with my dad going, do you know, we're making more money out of going out and doing these training courses for half a day than we are out of wearing all the gear that we've got, ironing it out. Um, and that started us off. So 1998, as the Pure Regs came in, and more and more people were going, we need, we need a certificate to get onto site, was when I started. So both me and my dad travelled around the country um, teaching people to use power tools and abrasive wheels and high-pressure water jetting um, and did all that stuff from 1998 and the, and the company's still running today. My, my oldest son has
1: taken all that over. So while your son is taking care of that, you have gone slightly slightly off at a bit of a tangent, I would say. Offered
0: some, offered a little bit of a piece, really, Mark. If you want <laughs> me to explain a little bit more about that, I will do. Please do. So some nine years ago, um, working away as I was, um, looking after the different companies that I was running, um, I was working for Chiltern Railways at the time, doing some training for them on a Thursday and Friday, and then had to travel to the other side of London to do some work for another client on a Saturday morning. Um, That's what you do when you work for yourself. That night I stopped in a hotel um, and I wasn't very well. I was physically sick that night. Um, Now when you work for yourself, you don't do sick. You do turning up and just getting on with it, um, but I was ill. So my wife's a my wife's a nurse, bless her for all of us. Since she's a she's a nurse, and uh, I rang her in the morning and said, "Look, you know, I've been really ill," and she went, "Like, just get the job done and get yourself off home." And by the way, on the fridge, there's a letter from the doctors that says you should have gone for a checkup, um, like a little bit of a mini M and So get paid heed to that straight away, not. When I saw the client in the morning, the client says, you don't look very well, Paul. I said, no, I'm really ill. He said, look, just get the stranded and go home. Um, so i set off home, pulled onto the services, fell asleep on the services. And a little man came and knocked on the window and he said, you've been here for more than two hours, I'll either pay or move on. And by the way, you don't look very well. So I grabbed myself a cup of coffee um, and continued my journey home. On the way home, I had a a strange sensation on the side um, of my face, which felt like somebody had um, got either a half a teaspoon of warm water and trickled it down the side of my face, um, or a a spider had run down it. Which was a bit odd, because I thought straight away, um, sunroof, water leak. um, And it wasn't, because I've got a sunroof. So it seemed a bit strange anyway. Went home, complained to the wife that I'd been ill. She thrust the piece of paper in my hand and went, Go to the doctors. So I went to the doctors, the doctor, and I thought, I'm just going to get told off. I'm going to get that, you know, high cholesterol, blood pressure, blah, blah, blah. I'm just going to get told off. So I gets to the doctors, they do all the checks, and uh, the guy said, so, You know what? He said, Your liver function's good. I was like, Yes, that's good news. Cholesterol's okay. So, ah, brilliant. And he said, You got high blood pressure. And I said, You want to try working in the plant and tall iron training industry for all these years? You too would have high blood pressure. Um, anyway, they sorted me tablets out, um, got me where I should, should be. And I went for one last checkup. And the guy said, he said, he said, Have you still got that strange sensation? I said, Yeah. So every couple of hours, you know, I get this, this weird sensation. He said, Okay, boy, he says we're going to send you for an MRI um, scan. Um, and i never had one of those before. And I, as you do, I end up bringing my best mate, Jim. Um, spoke to him this morning. He works for, uh, or he's about to start work with DOA um, in Milan in January. Um, one of the guys that you pick the phone up to in the middle of the night, and he's there. So I rang Jim and I said, Jim, I've going to go for this MRI scan. What's it like? And when are going to hate it? He says, you're going to want to get out. You want to take it to pieces. And you're going to want to find out where it does all that knocking when you're inside. <laughs> so I went for, the, went for this MRI scan. Um, and there was a lady, it was, it was in a, like a big Arctic. So there was there was two ladies doing the MRI scanning. There was a lady in having hers done. And, and of course, I talking through, you know, this is what's going on. I'm watching the thing, oh, brilliant, is this, this quite like this. So when I had mine done, came out and I went, right. I said, is there anybody else in behind me? They said, no, no. I said, can you play it back then? Can I have a look at what you've done on mine? And they said, "Oh no, you'll have to wait. And I thought, no, you miserable and I said, I don't think we have we got to wait? And they said, well, it could be you know, two or three weeks. Um, so you get on. So that was on the Wednesday. On the Friday, I had a phone call from the doctors going, we've got your results back. It's like, yes, fair play to Dudley NHS for getting that one turned so quick. And they said, can you come and see us? And I said, yeah, I can do it. So, so the days of the old paper diary. So I got the phone up and I'm like, yeah, what do you think? I'm a bit busy. When did you want me to come? And they went, this afternoon. And I was like, oh, okay. I said, well, I've got to pick my little boy up from school. I said, but, uh, I said, my mom's here. I said, because I'm going out tonight. And they said, good, 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 day. we're here at half past three. So down to the doctors um, and all that the doctor said was that I'd got a massive mastoid, which at that point didn't really mean a lot. And perhaps the viewers that are watching at the moment, they're going, I've no idea what that is. So there is a void up behind um, your jawbone, not that there's a big empty space and things rattle around. Um, so they I said, "So what happens now?" And they said, "Well, we're going to uh, we're going to put you in touch with the hospital, and the hospital will be in touch." So I got outside and, and didn't ring my wife first. I rang Jim and said to Jim, "Jim, uh, do us a favour. I said, "I've got this massive maskoid." He went, "Hang on, I'm on Google Death." So he's googled <laughs> this. He's googled this, and he went, "I can't tell you." And I could hear him filling up on the phone. And he put the phone down. He didn't ring me back till the Monday. He was really, he was really upset. So I rang my wife and my wife went, I don't worry about it, it's, it's going to be nothing. The Monday morning, I got a phone call from a guy called Mr. Grew. Now, I thought it was one of my customers playing up because it was the era of Mr. Grew and the Minions. So I said, this guy's rang. He's up all over them. I said, who's that? He said, it's Mr. Grew. I went, all right. I said, who's the Minions? Nothing. <laughs> <laughs> I said, right, OK. I said, who well, are you? He said, I'm your surgeon. He said, I've just sent you a letter. He said, "But you're going to get the letter too late. He says you need to be here on Wednesday morning at nine o'clock, and you need to bring somebody with you. Right, okay, that sounds a little bit serious. He went, "Yep, yeah, see you Wednesday." Clunk, down went the phone. So I said to Mor, "If you need to have the day off, we've got to go and uh, we've got to go and do this." So we went to the hospital, and he put up the scan that you've now got in your possession. Um, so it goes to all these layers in your head, and it gets down to this um, part here. Um, and there is a blob about the size of a golf ball. Uh, it's about four and a half centimetres in diameter. Um, running through the centre of that is my vagal nerve, which controls your heartbeat um, and lots of other functions around your body, which are quite serious. And at the back of it is the main carotid artery that supplies your brain with blood. So this guy's sitting there and he, and he said, uh, have you seen the scans? I said, no, so I went through and he put it up and I, and, and I said, oh, I said, what's the big blob? And he said, you've got a brain tumour. I said, all right, okay. And he said, it's going to kill you. Okay. That's quite a serious thing to say on a Wednesday morning. Um, And he said, right, so I need to ask you some questions. And I think this is really important about today and some of the other stuff perhaps we're going to talk about. So this guy sat there with a list in front of him and he said, have you done any of the following? So he said, have you smoked? And I said, yeah, I have. He said, have you ever worked with asbestos? I said, yeah, I have. He said, have you ever worked with brick dust or wood dust? So back in 1982, I was the guy that emptied the vacuum cleaners when they came back off the building sites and poured them into the skip. There weren't any dust bags then, guys. And there was no dust masks. And I was covered in it. Then he said, have you worked with use engine oils? I said, listen, mate. I said, I teach this stuff. I said, I know that it is all dangerous. And yes, I have worked with all of those. And he says, at the moment, he says, I can't tell you which one, if any of those have caused this. He said, until I can get it out. I said, okay. I said, so what's your intentions? He says, well, I want to have you back in next week and we're going to take it out. So for those of you are a disposition that don't like a bit of blood and core, you might want to turn off at this point. Um, so he said, we're going to get it out. So we're going to take your face off. So he says, we're going to cut you from behind both ears. Right the way, rainy he said, we're going to take all your teeth out. He said, we're going to dislocate your bottom jaw. And I'm going to saw from here up to here. He said, we're going to open it up. He said, then we're going to cut it off the vagal nerve. Right, okay, so then we're going to put you back together. So, all right. And just like taking your car or having a new mechanic to come in and have a look at one of your uh, one of your JCB diggers, you want to make sure that these guys have got some qualifications. So I said, uh, how many of these have you done? He says, well, I've only done one. He said, they're quite rare okay and what happened to him he said he died right okay this is not so good so I said so what's my chances of survival then based on this and he said 20% But okay I said so I survive can I carry on doing what I'm doing so naively at this point I think I'm going to be fine and he said well you won't be able to talk properly you won't be able to swallow properly you're going to have problems breathing Um, he said but apart from that you could be okay so I said, so when do you want to do this? He said, next week. I said, you can't do that next week. One, I've got no insurance. Two, I said, I'm an only son. My mom's still alive. She's in her 80s. I said, you can't. So I've got nobody to really run all the companies. I need to go away and put all of this into place. He said, how long do you want? So remembering that salesman's thing. So when I was 21, I thought, this is it. This is the perfect pitch. So I said, well, six months would be good. He said, I don't think I can give you that long. He said, I could probably give you three. He said, but if things start to change and get worse, you're gonna have to come back. So I left on this, oh nuts, I need to sort my life out. Um, and started putting some things into place with the companies. Started talking to people and saying my goodbyes and, and even and had some long conversations with Jim. Um, and we went away on holiday and did and did all sorts of things just to put that tick box. He did buy me at Christmas a 101 things to do before you die. One of them in that one hundred and one things to do before you die was about touching PP9 batteries that are in smoke detectors and putting them on your tongue. <laughs> I had to tell him at this point, I think that at that point there was thirty-six people around the world died from doing that, which wasn't a good thing to do. But we had we had some fun with it anyway, so I bought this three months, went through some some terrible times in that three months going I'm gonna die um, and something that I'd never done before. so I'd never been to church before. Um, apart from getting married twice I'd never been inside a church really wasn't interested it wasn't me. Um, but I sat at home. my wife was at work, my two children were playing in the bedroom. so my eldest lad at the time was 14. and my little boy was eight. Um, and, and I prayed I, I called out to whoever was out there and went why me I know I've done something wrong in the past and no doubt some of the people that will know me from my past will go yeah you did, not that bad but we have always got an alibi um, but I thought why me so I, I, I cried out and I fell asleep in the armchair uh, and woke up and, and during that, that sleep dream be, got told to go to church um, so I walked past the church to get to a church um went the first time my lads were like we don't go to church dad i said "Oh no!" i said "But well, you're too young to be left on your own going you're gonna have to come with me if you don't like it we won't go the following week anyway the following week came uh, and i couldn't get out of bed um i was on a real low um, my little boy who's eight my little my oldest boy knew a little bit not a lot and my youngest boy knew nothing we wanted to keep it away from him um and he got up he got himself dressed and he came up and he said daddy said we need to go we need to go to church and I said, no, not today, mate. I said, we'll go next week. And he says no, he said, you need to go to church. Okay, so got up, got dressed, went to church. Um, and the vicar that was there at the time said, do you want to talk to me? I said, yes, a matter of fact, I do. I want those answers um, to some of the questions that I've got, like, why me? And where do you go and what goes on? Um, and lots of people prayed for me. Um, we got confirmed at Worcester Cathedral in this three month window. Um, and I went back for the MRI scan, and Mr. Grew was there. It was also his dry sense of humor. And he says, What have you eaten? What have you drunk? What have you done? And I said, Nothing. Why? And he said, Your tumor stopped growing. And I said, Well, the only thing I have done, I said, is I've been to church. And he said, oh, that I think I've done. And he said, OK. He says, you've, you've just bought yourself another three months. Um, and that went on for four and a half years so every three months going we're definitely going to have this out we're definitely going to take your face off they tried to do, operate to get samples of it and that didn't happen um and then about four years ago um he had me in and he said look we're going to do one last scan but we, we really do want to take this out um and i'd spoken to people all over the world about these tumors I've done some real research into it um so they did one last mri scan and he called me in and i've got all my scans and uh, normally i'd walk in walk round to his computer and have a quick look at the scans. And I walked in and there was no scan. And I said, Mr. Groot, there's no scan this week. He said, no, there's a letter. He said, um, you better sit down. He said, the people that do these scans, Paul, he said, are very clever people. I said, yeah, I appreciate that. He said, but there's a spelling mistake in this. I said, Mr. Groot, what does he say? He said, it says on here, no significant growth in last four years. I said, so what's that mean? He said, it means that you're wasting my time and your time. And he got up and he shook me hand and he said, please leave. He said, and don't come back. So I still have my tumour. Um, and by God's grace alone, I am still here. Um, and I got more and more involved in doing stuff at church um, with readings and, and other things and became an authorised lay minister. And it got to a point where I didn't want to go to work, work, Um, and I ended up walking away from the businesses that I've got. Um, As much as I'm there for them if they need me, I'm not there to tell them how to run it or run the finances or or anything else. I'm just there as a friend on the end of the phone. Um, And and now I'm going on the route of ordination. So I'm at the Church Mission Society in Oxford, um, being trained up to be a pioneer. Um, I lead worship on a Wednesday from a high street shop in the middle of Craigley Heath, where we do some great work out there in the community. Um, and in about two and a half years' time to be ordained um, as what we call a distinctive deacon, which is somebody that works between the church doorsteps and the community. So that's that's me at the moment.
1: That is one of the most amazing stories I've ever heard. <laughs> um, I mean, I, I, I I'll, I'll be absolutely honest, yeah. Probably the same as you were up until this happened. I am. I am a man devoid of faith. I. I I'm. I've done the christening. I've done the getting married in church. That's where me and church is part company. Was there any religion in your family upbringing, or was was this completely, totally out of left field? Um, complete, completely left field,
0: Mark. Um, nobody. So my dad sang in the choir at St Martin's Church in the ball ring. When he was a little boy, but my mum and dad didn't go to church. My wife's parents didn't go to church. Um, I'd never been to Sunday school, so no, no, nothing
1: at all, nothing at all to do with church. I can't help thinking we'll come back to where you are now, but I can't help thinking that I can't think of too many industries <laughs> that I would consider more godless <laughs> than the demolition and construction. And lo unto that industry was born a soon- to be ordained minister it just it's it's beyond left field it's the field just past left field isn't it
0: yeah it was I, mean, it's in, I was talking to somebody yesterday about I would talk to everybody about, about it all day every day I suppose now this is this is my calling um but I, 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 it was great so when I was still working and teaching um it was nice to go around and 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 tell that story almost as it was ongoing. And talk to some of the new apprentices that were coming in, and talking to them about used engine oils, that putting your gloves on, and all the rest of it, and, and you know, making sure that we don't go around not wearing our dust masks when we're dealing with all this stuff. Um, but yeah, it has been, an, it has been really interesting. And, and the people, when I was looking going at ordination, one of the things that they ask you is to make sure that you, you're doing it for the right reasons. And I went and asked all of the customers that I was dealing with if they thought that this was me. Um, expecting everybody to go, no, you're mad, Paul, it isn't you. Um, and a huge proportion of people came out in the conversations that said that they had a faith of some sort. So that was that was really interesting for me, that nobody argued, nobody turned around and said, oh, you're mad, I don't believe in it, Paul. Everybody went, yeah, go on, get on with it, it's you. And then there was people at break times going, or I think oh, I might have a faith as well, or can you talk to me more about it? And that was and that was of all faiths, that was multi-faith. Um, I mean, now I sit on the West Midlands Combined Authority for multi-faith, um, and that plays an important part to me, that we've got this faith going across the whole of the West Midlands, um, and that we're all trying to work together.
1: I, I spent quite a lot of my time with, um, well, with the demolition fraternity, but uh, particularly the uh, the demolition fraternity around Birmingham. And there, there is a very, very strong sort of Catholic foothold. Yeah, yeah, those guys, you know, Irish upbringing and that, or Irish yeah. heritage, or whatever it might be. So, I'm, I'm well aware of that. But it's surprising. It, to my mind, in this day and age, it feels it feels surprising that it runs that deep. You know?
0: Yeah, I mean, I mean, I, I speak for the Church of England, and obviously across the across the multi faiths, so we have churches changed. Um, and I'm talking about church. I'm talking about the church building not as church Um, you know the the pubs are open seven days a week Um, you going to church on a Sunday has changed we've got very little people coming to church on a Sunday Um, but what we are finding is that we've got people coming to churches on different days so tomorrow morning I've got worship running out of this double fronted shop next to Iceland by the bus stop Um, and we've got 21 22 people that will attend that tomorrow ageing from 93 years of age down to 4 um, so we'll have some baby shark going on there somewhere tomorrow <laughs> for the little lad that's going to come with us. Um, but, it, but it's interesting that people are, are people that still want to come to faith, but not particularly on a Sunday. Um, lots of the older people that I talk to talk about where they've they were almost forced to go to the Sunday schools, and then when they got old enough, they didn't want to come after. Um, but we as as construction and demolition we need to change you were talking um this morning i was listening to some of the stuff that you're playing on this morning about whether people we should be looking at our youngsters that are picking up their um their xboxes and and using stuff um and and i think we need to move with the times um the days of us all going deaf and our vibration on site needs to stop and we need to enhance and encourage um the stuff that we've got going on um i was sat with probably in the background mark i don't know whether you can see it, there's a, a kooka robotics robot um and i was with there's an engineering and technology place that's opened in dudley and I was, I was i was giving a talk there with the bishop um two weeks ago and that's really encouraging the amount of people that are taking up this new technology um with these new robots and of course that's that's our future for us in demolition and in, in construction
1: you your past background, I guess, is is now sort of influencing what you're doing within the church. You know, that, that idea of sort of reaching out to people and, and being supportive, but also, you know, your, your brush with ill health as well. So you're well aware of that. But I, I guess it cuts both ways as well, because, you know, that outreach is very much of its time, because we're we're talking constantly these days about things like mental health and, and suicide and that kind of thing within construction and I, I i've referred to this in the past you know a lot of people reach out to a crutch of be it drugs or alcohol yeah. which is again another talking point but other people their crutch is is sometimes the church so you you kind of sit at the the, the crux of all of that don't you
0: yeah so tonight um we're going to feed about 40 to 60 people tonight. Uh, and there's another one later on in this week for every Tuesday night. We, we feed 40 to 60 people. Most of those people are most of the people that I meet nowadays. that walk into the, into this shop that we've got. This calf are broken. Um, and I, I don't think there's any of us that aren't broken in some way. Some people need a sticking plaster. Some people need some more serious stuff that's in that first aid kit. Um, but drugs and alcohol are huge, um, and mental health. We, we've run a men's group on a Wednesday afternoon, and we've run numerous um, people coming in and talking to us about men, men's mental health. It's huge. But I've got a there's a ladies' group that's run this morning. There's 14 ladies that go to that, really gelling together about mental health. Um, but there is huge amounts of drugs and alcohol at the moment that, that, that is about. Um, And as a church and as multi-faith, we play a really important part in that because the studies show that a lot of the people that when they turn to drugs and alcohol or something else, that there has been what we call a catastrophic failure. So whether that's the loss of a child or the bereavement of a family friend, or whether it's somebody really close to us, that catastrophic failure, normally we would see in some way. Um, And and, uh, I feel responsible doing what I do about picking that up at its early
1: stages and walking
0: with people to try and help them
1: um, I really do your, I mean in some ways your health was your I guess your catastrophic failure it was a, a medical failure but catastrophic mm. nonetheless yeah and, it, and it, well, I mean I sat
0: um, I sat in this office um, and out of the window which you can't see it's full of machinery um, and I sat in here one night all night going it would be easier if I wasn't here a lot easier if I just walked away from all of this and I, and I ended this on my terms and not on Mr. Grew's terms. Um, I was quite prepared to end all of that. Um, and luckily for me, my faith carried me through that night. But I appreciate that not everybody has the benefit of that faith. Um, and, and I've taught mental health, I've done some of the mental health training It's it's paramount on site now. It it really is. You know your mates on site better than anybody else does. So I I saw my niece on Sunday. I haven't seen her for months and months and months and months. She's got two young children. Really stressful job uh, working um, in in a school as a teacher. And one of the two of the questions asked were exactly the same. And how are you? And really, how are you? Are you finding time in all of this for you? Um, because we've seen so many people that are on that edge, right on that very edge um, and, and as, as people that's close we can we can see it sometimes and don't be scared to ask the question. Um, the person that looks jolly on the outside can very, be very much broken on the inside.
1: I had my own ups and downs mental health wise um, and one of the, the key causes of that was loss of best friend in a motorcycle accident um, I tried counselling didn't work tried happy pills not entirely sure whether they worked or not I've got to be honest I mean I, you know I've, I've been absolutely blown away with your story but I think if somebody had offered me church or God or faith as an option I think I'd have treated that exactly the same way as I treated happy pills and, and counselling it must be hard when, I mean clearly you you are a believer and fair play to you for it but is that not hard when you come up against people that you know either by design or you know previous experience they've decided nope that's not for me I, I want no part of it
0: yeah I got asked this question yesterday from somebody quite up within the church and they said what happens if they ask you about church and I said I'm going to make it really nice and simple it's broke um, the church is broken. He's been broken for many years, and there's no point turning around and saying it's any different because it's not. That would be would be fibbing. Um, the church is broken. A lot of the churches are broken. But the good thing is is that we know that, um, and we need to work now so that that doesn't happen again. Um, I can only work on the experiences that I've had, so I've been working with a guy, and we'll call him Dave for today. Um, that I've walked with him for the last 12 months. So he lost his wife, um, she passed away. He won't live in the flat um, that they're in. So it's a council flat. He won't sleep there. Um, so he sleeps in the local graveyard um, with the other um, alcoholics and the drug addicts. And when he hasn't got any any money, um, they support him um, by giving him drugs and, and alcohol. Now I've walked with him for 12 months <clears throat> He turned up on one of our worship Wednesdays to get told off by a 93-year-old who just lost her husband and has now just lost her son. Um, And he said, well, how do you cope? And she she said, well, I've got a faith. And he went, well, I I, I don't think I've got one. Um, 12 months later, we're now starting slowly to talk to him. um, And he has started to change his habits for the right habits. um, And he's accepting now that we're trying to help. Not from a... Let's be faith, but that we're there as a friend to walk with him, to get him that help from the right people. So we deal with Cranston, we do with Samwell Council, so we've got one of the lowest areas of drug and alcohol within the West Midlands through Samwell. And that's the way that we're trying to catch people and walk with them. And I think that's the support that we need to be giving to that the drug and alcohol. But I was talking to this, this young lad downstairs, um, Gary, who works with Coleman's, about this drug and alcohol issue. We know that there's a huge percentage of people on site um, that are under the influence of it. Um, There was an interesting conversation with them this morning talking to them about what should we do? And they were talking about make sure that you get all the supervisors and managers checked if you're gonna do all the lads on site. But we were also talking about support and making sure that there is a support network there and that we don't just push these people away, that we try and support them in some way Otherwise, we are going to have a catastrophic failure. It's it's really
1: quite interesting. Uh, I I think uh, you described this church as broken. I'm glad you said it, not me, um, because knows, okay. I, it kind of opens up the conversation. I think, you know, as an outsider looking in, if you take something like the Bible and just say, here's a pretty good set of rules to live by. You know, not going to enforce it. You're not going to pitch up here on a Sunday and, and do your do do your singing and your dancing and all that. But here's a pretty good set of rules to live by. A pretty good book, I have to say. And also when you when you strip away maybe the, the, the religious elements of it, going to church and hanging out with some like-minded people uh, once or twice a week, probably not a bad idea at all. Yeah, um, and, and, and just
0: like our man Dave. He's out there with a load of other people and hanging around with them. And he's come to the opinion now that he's better to come and sit in our little calf in a safe place with safe people that are non-judgmental and, and we'll feed him and we'll give him tea and coffee all day long and he helps us out. Now he volunteers and gives a little bit of help. It's safer for him than it is for him to hang around with those people that aren't doing it. So that hanging out bit... Um, uh, an interesting one, Mark, I suppose, really, off the back of that is I had a guy come to see me that was that was um, looking for a job um, to come and work with me doing what I do. Um, and he came and he got this big, long list of all these things. And he was he was talking, you know, this chapter, this and that verse, that out of the Bible. And I sat there for about an hour and listened to him. And he said, well, he said, at no point, he said, have you quoted any chapters or verses, he said, out of the Bible? And I said, no. I said, we don't do that. I said, he doesn't need selling. I said, by your actions alone it will sell itself I said just sit and look around you at the people that are in here that are broken that are here because we're not trying to sell something and he went Ah, this is what a good point I said yeah so you don't need to stand up there and quote chapter on verse it's very much like trying to sell health and safety you don't need to go up there and quote out the pure red, red nine paragraphs one and two most of the people know that anyway but by your actions alone that should speak louder than those words
1: because of the, the, the mental health thing, but also because of the drugs and alcohol thing, I've I've been speaking about this quite a bit recently, and we, we've got various initiatives going on. Um, the one, one that I spoke to recently was uh, a guy who believes that there is a place for sport to help with mental health. In other words, you know, get together, have a kick around on a five-a-side pitch or go and play a game of golf, what it might be, which is not dissimilar to what we've just said, you know, this idea of, of getting a group of people together to have a chat. Is there a place for... Faith, church, religion on the modern demolition construction site. Hoorah!
0: <laughs> yes, there is. <laughs> there is. I have. I have. When I so when I first when I first came and started working with the church, and I went, I would love to be one walking around the industrial estates, going and talking to people in on the industrial estates, because I do feel that there is there. there, there and there's a bit called chaplaincy. So, there are people, so in Merry Hill, the big major shopping centre, there are chaplains based in there, but there aren't many chaplains that work in the workplace. And I honestly believe that there is a place for people on, on our construction sites and places like that for people to go and talk to them. Um, there used to be the Round Oak Steelworks, not far from here, massive, massive organisation. Um, and the local vicars used to go in there once or twice a week just to go in and talk to the staff. And that really helped the workforce and it helped the employer by these people having somebody to talk to that wasn't from in the workforce that was non-judgmental. So yeah, I think there's I think there's a, a huge scope there um that's untapped that we
1: could be that person to go and talk to. Going back to when you I, I don't even know what the terminology is, when you had your, your dreams thing you, you you came to a realization your epiphany i, I don't know what you call it that's right that's that's how, that's how, did, how, how, how did your family react because i've got to be honest i think if i if i woke up my wife up tomorrow morning and said <laughs> I've, I've, I've been having a, a natter with the bloke upstairs <laughs> i've decided no. to quit the job uh, uh, the conversation's gonna be pretty pretty brief i think
0: yeah, I mean, so my, my, as I say, my wife's a sister now. Um, she's I, I met her when she was a student, so we've gone through all sorts of things, and she's been massively supportive. Um, where she, I mean, she runs the ladies' groups, and, and we did Santa for twenty or thirty kids yesterday and stuff. She really does get heavily involved. But right at the very beginning, my wife was quite sceptical, going, "Really, you know, are these guys trying to convert you? Are they, are they you know, is this some sort of cult thing that's going on?" Um, so yeah, I went, I went through all that, all, that whole pain barrier, and me getting really excited about it. My wife almost keeping my feet on the floor, going, "You need to slow down and just think about what's going on." So she really has kept me firmly rooted, uh, rather than flying off, because I'm fairly sure I'd have been off working somewhere else. Um, doing some of God's work around the rest of the world by now. Um, but she's kept me firmly rooted. But when I got asked if I wanted to go through for ordination, um, I had to go home and say to her, Look, these guys want me to become ordained as a priest. Um, what do you think? Um, and both my wife and my two children went, Get, Just go and do it you. Um, and that for me spoke volumes. So, yeah, it's with their blessing that I'm doing what I'm doing. And, and when I decided to stop, Doing all the businesses, so we you know I was in and out of China, import export. I did all sorts of things. We had some great holidays and everything else. And now I really do have to budget like everybody else does. Um, that money, that income, is not there anymore. Um, so it's had a massive effect on us as a family. But they've been really supportive.
1: Setting aside, you know, the, the recovery from your your, your mass, uh, your tumor. Yeah. And and what you're doing now? How has this changed you as a person? Do, do, do you, <laughs> uh, I, 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 I'm trying not to say, are you one of those happy clappers that leaps out of bed every morning with a big grin no. on his face and, and all is right with the world? No, no, certainly certainly not the happy clappy type. Um, <laughs> for, I mean, I, I,
0: I've I've always got out of bed in the morning, and I've never ever ever i got out of bed in the morning all the years i went to work never got up and got oh, i don't want to go today i thoroughly enjoyed doing what i did traveling all over the world all the things that i did even the horrible jobs like emptying those uh those vacuum cleaners when they came back i thoroughly enjoyed all of it um and i still get out of bed the same way now i thoroughly enjoy doing what i'm doing it has its low points the same as every job does but um yeah I thoroughly enjoy it so yeah no th- th- thoroughly enjoyed it. so it's changed me from being I suppose in my past, when I made decisions as a director, if I made a decision, we did it, and we did it straight away. Now things don't happen so quickly. So if I have an idea about wanting to do something, we really need to work with the community and the volunteers I've got to pull it off. And that could take months. So we're working on some projects at the moment that have been bubbling away for 12 months that um, will be awesome for the local community.
1: I guess my final question, I, I realise you're, you are I'm assuming you're working pretty much locally with the local community there, but given all that you've said, if anybody out there has, has watched this or listened to this and, and would like to get in touch, is there a way to do that from outside the area?
0: Yeah, so um, we've got, uh, we're on LinkedIn, so um, the Cradley Heath community link is on LinkedIn, we'd love to have some followers on there, um, we're on Facebook, and again it's the Cradley Heath community link. Um, there's a there's a, a an email on all of those that you can get in touch with me, um, and I'd love to have some more conversations with people, just to give you a, a bit of a, a two inklings if I can, Mark. That we've got uh, two projects that we're running currently. One is a children's school uniform swap, so we've run that for two years now. Um, this year we've just run it, and we we we're basically taking uniform that kids have grown out of. Um, they bring those in um, cleaned and done we re-bag those um, and we'd redistribute those we did two and a half thousand children's school uniforms in just over a week um, there is a massive call these kids that came uh yesterday to this um have breakfast with santa in our little cafe area um, just looking at the kids and looking at the parents going do you know what? i've met all of you over the last 12 months using the services that we've got, whether that's the food bank or whether it's the clothes bit that we're doing. Um, So it's getting out and reaching the right people. Um, The other thing that we're working on is a a bike project with with, um, young people. So we're looking at getting push bikes. Um, Alford's have already donated a huge amount, they give us 67 push bikes for us to work with. But we're gonna train up some um, bike mechanics so that during the day they can have their own little business um, we can get the kids that are on the streets, off the streets, fixing bikes, so we can inspire them just as I was inspired when I was young um, and give them that you can-do attitude uh, and get them involved in electric bikes and normal bikes as well. But then we can build bikes then for the little kids and we can build bikes for parents and we'll do lead bike rides and stuff. And hopefully that gives us a next lot of engineers that will be working on these machines that you talk about every week quite passionately. Um and we need them. Um, so hopefully, this little project that we've got going across Sanwell at the moment—67 with 67 bikes in, uh, I think, it's eight different areas—will take off around the rest of the country. And if we can fund it properly, that's, that's our next lot of engineers, mate. That's where I'd like to, to, to be able to do.
1: Paul, honestly, that has been absolutely inspiring. Cool. I don't, trust me, you've seen you've seen my show. I'm not a man that's inspired. Uh, I... <laughs> No.
0: I'll tell you what was inspiring about it, if I can. And I know I'm fair play to you. The guy that you had um, from France... Was it France that was doing the talk a, a few weeks ago? Yeah, Gilles Ronnie. Yeah. What an inspiring guy. 30-odd years doing what he's doing. And you know when you just go... And this is something we get taught for when we're going through for what we're doing for ordination, is that you really need to do go and sit in, in what we call the context. You go and sit in that context and go and see what's going on and work in it. You can't do that from a distance. And it was so very evident of him that he'd been sat in it for so long. He'd absorbed it, he'd sucked it in. He was influencing the business about what they were bringing out as new machines, and that was so powerful with him doing that. Absolutely brilliant. All the best, Paul. Have a great Christmas, and I'll speak to you again sometime. God bless. Thank you. Bye-bye now.